welcome to The Connected Generation. My name is Nikia Anani and I'm your host. On The Connected Generation, we explore all things legacy wealth and legacy businesses, how to build businesses and wealth that would outlive the founders and have sustained impact, not only over time, but also over space. And we invite guests from all over the world and have conversations with genuine curiosity, authenticity and vulnerability. This week, I was joined by Dustin DeVries, who is a co-founder of an agency called Caffeine Interactive Technologies, and they focus on planning strategies and architecture. And it was really interesting conversation because he has built up this company um, based on a 100% remote team for the last eight years. So he's had a head start over most of us who had to adapt to this remote living in 2020. And he also runs his business with his wife. So we had a really interesting conversation on entrepreneurship, on remote working, on marketing and the likes. So listen in and enjoy. Hi, Dustin. Welcome to The Connected Generation. It's awesome to have you. Yes, thanks for having me. Cool. So you're the co-founder of a, a company called Caffeine Interactive Technologies. Tell us more about who you are and how did you get to where you are today? Sure. So we are a digital agency um, started back in 2013. Uh, we focus on everything kind of digital media related to everything from digital marketing to uh, website development to web and mobile app development. Uh, so it started in 2013. Before that, I worked in the uh, semiconductor industry for about 10 years. Uh, took a few years after that, uh, so starting in 2000, spent about three years doing freelancing and then kind of hit critical mass with my clients, decided to uh, either start charging more or start adding more members to my team and, and build a team and chose the latter. And here we are nine and a half years later, <laughs> still, still going to town. Amazing. Amazing. And so can you tell us more about the nitty gritty? Like, you've just given us like a PR version of this. Like I'm sure there were days that it was just like, this is hard work. Like what, what obstacles did you face along your journey and how did you overcome those? Oh man, there's like so many. It's like, which one do you hone in on? <laughs> um, you know, it's really, it's try and experiment. And if it doesn't work, you know, pivot. And so a lot of that, mm. um, you know, I, I can say kind of move from current day moving backwards. So, you know, today, uh, we spend a lot of time, I think, working on marketing. It's something we've never, even though we do a lot of marketing for other other co- companies, we haven't done a lot for ourselves. Mm. And so we've been fortunate to have really just, yeah, exactly. It's like mm. the interior decorator who's your interior, you know, organizer whose house is a mess, right? Mm. Um, it kind of feels like that sometimes because we're too busy with, with client work. But uh, yeah, it's been, you know, struggling with that just because we haven't really spent a lot of time on it. Now realizing that we want to take our company up to the next level. And to do that, you know, we're always going to be capped. We're always going to have a little bit of a ceiling if we're just going to rely on organic, like referrals and things like that. So that's one of the big challenges that we've had as of late. Also just hiring, you know, experimenting with different ways to build a team, mm-hmm. to build a staff. We are a global team. Um, and so that comes with some challenges. But, you know, on the flip side, we were very well prepared when COVID and the pandemic started because we were already used to working remotely and, and had a remote team. So that's always a challenge, the staffing and, you know, running projects, managing projects, uh, figuring out how to work with a variety of different people. 
you know, I think I do pretty well on that front. I've always been pretty flexible with different personality types. I don't consider myself like a real abrasive personality type that walks into the room and everyone kind of is like, oh, <laughs> he's here, we got to act a certain way or he's going to, you know, do this or do that. At least I think that's my impression. That's what people tell me, but maybe I'm wrong on that. But yeah, you know, those are a few challenges mm -hmm. I, could, I could highlight. There's probably more that I'm not thinking of. No, oh, no those, are, those, those are really good. I love the piece on experimenting and I want to like drill deeper on that. Like, mm -hmm. can you walk us through how you do that in practice? Because I think as an entrepreneur, it's important to experiment and try new things and measure what's working. But yeah. sometimes it's difficult to know whether you're measuring the right thing. Um, mm -hmm. Is have you, have you given it sufficient time? I want to know, like, can you walk us through an example of how you experiment and how you pivot? Yeah, so yeah, I'm trying to think of what, because, uh, you know, the, across the board with pretty much every aspect of our business, we've done different types of experimentation. Uh, you know, I'll take one like hiring, for example, because you mentioned that just a minute ago. Um, you know, we've tried different types of hiring, uh, whether it's hiring people who are on contract um, to hiring people full time for a company, um, hiring in different regions and that sort of thing. And so I would say part of the experimentation has just been trying different things. Um, you know, we, we did a lot of hiring early on in, in our company in, in India, and we've had some really good success in India, but we, we've also found, you know, some of the cultural things. Sometimes it seemed like a lot of the times we'd hire someone, we were hiring someone who's trying to start their own agency. And so within, you know, three to six months, they're basically coming back and saying, oh, well, now I've got a team and do you mind having this other person come in and work? for you instead of me, because I've got some other projects I'm working on as well. Um, you know, granted, we didn't have a very big data sample size, so it's difficult to make any kind of generalizations about that sort of thing. But, you know, trying different things, like I said, hiring contractors, we've hired agencies before early on in our business where we needed uh, software teams to help us with projects. We hired agencies and sometimes it worked out okay. Most of the time it didn't work out well. So we pivoted into, you know, going into more of a full-time direct relationship with all of our employees, which is how we've been staffed. I mean, this, several years ago, we were going through this and we've been, um, everyone that works for us now is full-time dedicated to us, exclusivity with us, that sort of thing, um, you know, for the last at least five years probably. But that was an area where we had to pivot and try different things uh, when it came to, to hiring and trying to figure out where to even find people, you know, and the hiring process is always a difficult one. Like where do you find candidates? Uh, so experimenting with that, trying different different methods there. Amazing, amazing. And you mentioned that you've got a global team. Yes, yes, we have um, we have a couple development teams uh, around the world. We have one in the Philippines, uh, about four or five developers over there, and then we have another, I don't know, three or so developers, three or four developers down in Bolivia. Um, and we just are hiring someone in Nicaragua right now, so. Um, we have a marketing person who works in Nicaragua, but as far as the software development side, hiring our first uh, software developer from Nicaragua. So, uh, yeah, and it's been cool. You know, obviously time zone challenges with that. Philippines is almost exactly 12 hours apart from where I am here in the uh, U.S. central time zone. So um, that obviously can create some challenges as well with uh, communication and collaborating on projects and scheduling meetings with customers, all that, all that fun stuff. Indeed, indeed. And I know that you are on your, you're building your business and you are also um, your first generation business owner. Can you tell us more about how that journey has been like? And I know you work with your spouse. 
Yeah, uh, you know, it's always a question people ask a lot about how we manage to uh, to do that. And it's, it's worked out really well because my background is in software development and her background is in product strategy. And so we actually complement each other pretty well. Um, yeah, we are a first generation business and I really love the concept behind your podcast. The fact you're looking at like multi-generations sort of thing, because even though we're not a multi-generation company yet, that's obviously, yet. that would be one of my goals, right? I mean, I, I would love, I can't imagine, uh, I mean, there's definitely better things you can give your children than a business, but to be able to mm -hmm. hand that down to them and work with them and bring them on, I mean, has to be just a really rewarding feeling. And I've seen that play out with people I know, friends of mine who have uh, been fortunate enough to have parents that maybe uh, started a business and were able to hand it over to them. Mm -hmm. A lot of responsibility. And I know you probably talk about these kind of topics all the time on, on uh, your podcast, but uh, you know, being a first generation business, I would love to be able to build something that I could hand down to my, to my children. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, you know, wife and I the, the same way. I mean, you see what the what the future holds. Um, mm -hmm. Software industry is one that's evolving pretty quickly. You know, a lot of different technologies are constantly changing. Um, you know, definitely a lower barrier of entry in a lot of ways for building, obviously building websites for sure, building apps as well. Mm -hmm. uh, lower barrier of entry now than it ever has been. It's only going to get more so. Mm -hmm. So you know, we'll see where the where the future leads us. Uh, at least on the software dev side, and digital marketing is obviously something that continues to grow more and more. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's always going to be opportunities there. So, mm -hmm. yeah, we just keep pivoting with it. Interesting. And what role specifically does your spouse play in the business? Is she on the front lines? Is she behind the scenes? No, she's her team that she manages is really customer focused, customer centric. So they spend a lot of time with. The customers, like if we're building, so we're building a new app for somebody, uh, she'll spend a lot of time working directly uh, with the customer and understand the requirements, understand the needs, and then mm. putting that into something digestible and quantifiable that we can then go and build. And so my responsibility is really on the implementation side uh, with our team when we're talking about software, uh, building out software, um, and she, her team is kind of the input into that process. Uh, I mean, obviously, when we start a new project, you know, my team's looking at things like architecture and what technologies we want to use, but she's making sure we cover all the different use cases, edge cases, everything that's involved and putting it that into, like I said, a quantifiable format that then our team can go and build, mm. you know, and to kind of expand that a little bit more, you know, the analogy I like to use a lot when I talk about it with, with our customers is like, if you're going to go build, say, a custom home, mm. you wouldn't just hire a bunch of construction guys to show up on site with, you know, lumber and hammers and nails and screws and all that sort of stuff, right? And expect them to build something that's going to work. You're going to start with an architect. You have someone who's going to determine where everything's laid out and kind of determine what, you know, there's no ambiguity as far as where the electrical lines should be running, right? Or where the plumbing should be installed or, you know, how the foundation should be poured. That's all spelled out really clearly. So that way, when it comes to the implementation side, it's really easy to measure success and failure. So a lot of what she does is making sure we have all the parameters in place, everything set so that when we get to that point of implementation, it's very clear how to constitute success and failure. You know, the majority of software projects, we inherit a lot of projects that were built maybe by another organization that were, you know, not working correctly or the end result wasn't what the, you know, original vision was. And so a lot of that all has to do with planning, you mm -hmm. know, and if you sort of take that comparison, I think the, the construction, building a custom home analogy works really well we're thinking about software because we think of it as like this sort of nebulous thing, not something physical you can touch because it's all software code, right? But at the end of the day, the process should be fairly similar. 
And that's what mm -hmm. we try to adopt when we think about building software. Cool, cool. I want to dig deeper into, you've been managing remote team for the last eight years. So you've had a head start on a lot of people. <laughs> Can you teach us like what have you learned over the last eight years? Um, and for a lot of us that are still new to this game and having to now start thinking, are we going hybrid? Are we just going to carry on with remote? Um, just any thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, when it comes to remote teams, yeah, we have maybe a little bit of a nudge because we've been working that way for a while. But, you know, I think it's been, um, I'm trying to think of like some of the challenges. I mean, obviously communication. Uh, we're a small team, you know, we're just under 20 people total. So I think we have a lot more uh, flexibility maybe, or um, that's not the right term I'm looking for. But when you think about building a team, I, like I feel it's got to be really tough for large organizations that have like hundreds of people working, right? Because I think there's only certain personality types that really can thrive well remote. And maybe it's going to change. Maybe that's more of a challenge for people that they, they have to overcome just because you're not, you don't have the right personality type. I don't even know what that means when I say that personality type, what personality type dictates you can work well remotely. I mean, probably someone who's a self-starter, self-guided, uh, doesn't need a lot of that human, you know, some people really thrive from the social aspect of their job. And they get energy from the social interactions they have and that drives them to, to perform better at work and now you're stuck at home without that so how do you manage that well for mm -hmm. us we when we think about our hiring process we're just trying to hire people that and it's difficult a lot of it com comes from intuition but just trying to find people that fit kind of our culture mm -hmm. and that we feel like we can bring on and are able to really um you know be self-regulated self-managed um, that's real important to us. I mean, I know other software companies like ours that they hire software developers and they require all their developers to install things like, uh, you know, monitor trackers. It's like, you know, these apps they install on their computer, they can constantly monitor what's going on on their screen when they're clocked in mm. doing work. So you can see if the person's actually working or if they're sitting on Facebook or whatever. We've never done that, you know, and the reason why is because I wouldn't want to work for a company like that. So part of it's mm -hmm. just, you know, from a like ethical or just being a good person so that you can get good things back from the people you work with. There's that aspect to it, but also just be, you know, we were fortunate enough that we are a small enough company that we can be kind of picky about who we hire. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if someone doesn't work out, which sometimes that does happen, we can, we can move on pretty quick. When you're a large organization that's had everyone in the office for decades and all of a sudden now, pandemic hits, you've got to, you know, move to this new model. Mm. I can imagine there's a certain percentage of your workforce that's really going to struggle mm. with that. And I'm sure that's impacted those companies. But for us, the fact that we started off hiring people that have the right, like I said, personality types to handle that has been a big asset for us to be able to, to manage that. But we don't do anything special. I mean, <laughs> a lot of the things we're doing when it comes to managing, I mean, I, I like to think we're special. I should <laughs> Of course we <laughs> do. Caffeine Interactive is a very special company, folks. But uh, no, I think um, I don't want it to, uh, I, I think when it comes down to like the tools and the processes and stuff, a lot of the things we do are things that other companies have figured out and have adapted to, mm. but it really comes down to communication and it comes down, I think more than the tools you use because everyone get access to Zoom and all the different, you know, things like that to, to collaborate. But it really comes down to is having the right people that are real intentional about communicating and collaborating. Mm. And so that's mm. what we've tried to do. And I think it's a challenge for most companies, most organizations from what I see is bringing some of their folks along to be better at those things. 
Mm. When in the past, they didn't have to because they were in an office environment surrounded by a bunch of people and the communication maybe came a little more naturally. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Amazing. So I want to like hone in closer on your company and the work that um, you're doing. What common struggles do you find that your clients are facing? Uh, well, you know, I mentioned we've inherited a lot of projects. Um, so I think a lot of times uh, we have customers who have gone and hired another agency to help them with, with things. And, um, you know, like I've mentioned the whole housing construction analogy, maybe they had someone who was built, you know, I think one of the nice things about our company is the fact that my wife is a, uh, her background is in product strategy, because if it was just me, I might be tempted to, you know, find out about a new project and just start writing code right from the get go. Right. But planning mm-hmm. and, and organizing is really important. And so I think that's something that has helped us differentiate ourselves and help you know, help our, our customers. I think that a lot of our customers really do struggle with finding an agency and we're not the only ones who do that. I mean, there's, there's really good agencies like ours that do a really good job. But there's a lot of them that don't, a lot of them that are just very software based. And so they don't really think about the problem they're trying to solve. They maybe don't think about even simple things like the business requirements of the, the product that they're building or the mm-hmm. monetization strategy, the marketing strategy, you know, all these things play into how you conceptualize and build out that that product. And if you're not thinking about those things early on, or you don't have someone who's helping you go through those things, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, you end up with a product that you think maybe hits the mark, but it really doesn't. And sometimes when it's your product, when it's your baby, you're the customer that's paying someone to build something. Sometimes you don't see all the blind spots, you know? Mm-hmm. So if you're working with an agency, uh, you know, expectations to certainly be, you get to see uh, a better perspective on all that you have an outside voice kind of coming in and giving you guidance and advice on how to how to build things um i think that's real important and then you know there are types of challenges of see companies that go out and or people customers who go and spend a lot of time you know it's already money's a big you know setback it's spent a lot of money building something Mm. but time especially sometimes these windows of opportunity are, are short so how can you get something built in a you know reasonable amount of time get out the door because the most important thing you think about building a product is in my opinion, the customer feedback loop. So mm-hmm. whatever type of product you're building, you want to get people interacting with it as soon as possible. So you can understand like how they use that product, what their expectations are, because there's always pivots. You know, everyone starts off with one idea for a product and it pivots over time into something else. You mm-hmm. know? And so I think that's real important to, to do. And that's something that we try to do, but I know it's a struggle something we make we're real intentional about because we know it's a problem that we need to solve but i can see where a lot of our customers that come to us have had bad experiences with that because they've worked with someone who wasn't that intentional on those sort of things mm-hmm. can you tell me more about how covid 19 has been for your um business because I, I presume you serve folks all, o- all over the world yes yeah so you know we've had we've had employees that have had to drop off for uh um you know, because they're feeling sick and had COVID, uh, you know, so that, that has come up. It hasn't been a huge impact to us like it has for others. I mean, feel, I consider ourselves pretty fortunate, you know, knock on wood that it doesn't become, because <laughs> we're still, you know, COVID's still out there, even though we're, we're starting to think of life maybe in a post-pandemic world, or at least learning how to live with it, I think is probably the more appropriate way to look at it. But, um, you know, we haven't been severely impacted. We've had some employees have had to you know, drop off work for a few days. We've had to, uh, you know, jump in and 
Uh, we try to have redundancy on all of our projects. So we've had situations where someone's had to, you know, maybe uh, uh, pick up for someone else because they've had to go offline because they weren't feeling well. But fortunately, we haven't had anyone, you know, suffer any kind of real severe illness from COVID, which, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I know people who have personally, but as far as in our company, our employees, we haven't had to experience that that too much. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. definitely consider ourselves somewhat lucky there. Mm -hmm. And just thinking through back to um, what you do at Caffeine and um, um, I guess where I'm heading towards is I, a lot of entrepreneurs, uh, obviously we're in this tech revolution, are thinking through an app kind of, products and what have you what what tips do you have for them in terms of that have a concept and they want to you know move it from concept to bring it to life mm -hmm. do you have any tips for them in terms of what they should be thinking about commercially yeah i mean you definitely want to think about all the different facets of it um i'll give you one tip i think it's the biggest advice i can give but before i get to that Think, think about the different facets of it, like monetization and all of that is, is definitely important. The product strategy, who your audience is, who your customers are. But I think one of the biggest things you can do, one of the things we've got a lot of our customers to do is to build what we call a prototype. So if you're building an app that you're, this works really great if you're, if you're planning on getting investors, right? If you've got a big idea for an app, and you just want to get something to help people be able to visualize and interact with it and see how the app's going to work and really paint that picture for them. Mm -hmm. A prototype is an awesome way to do that. And so if you're thinking about that kind of an app, I think that that's really, and it doesn't have to be just investors. I mean, even if you have customers, if you have, if you're a real estate agent, you have an idea for a real estate app. I mean, you can go build a prototype. You can spend an order of magnitude less, you know, it's the average app, you know, it's a, I couldn't even really give you an accurate average price for an app because it's all over the board. If you go uh, with the companies based strictly offshore, um, yeah you know, certain like developing emerging countries kind of thing, you can maybe build an app for 10 or $15,000. You go mm. with the company's 100% domestic, US-based, US-based employees, everything. You spend a 250, you know, spend a quarter million dollars just to get your minimum viable product out. And then oh. everything in between, right? So I mean, it's a lot so of So 250,000 in the US. Yeah, oh yeah, there's and, people who spend, whoa. Yeah, easy to drop 250 grand on that. That's not, I'm not saying that's what we would charge. Yeah. Because right. we have sort of a hybrid model. And that's because we have offshore developers and we have a streamlined process. I don't, you know, this is talking about like big, uh, you know, fairly large enterprises that want to go build something and they want to get something done uh, with the US-based agency, um, have them come in and, you know, sit in their office and talk through on a whiteboard what they're building and all that. Yeah, it's not uncommon to see someone spend a quarter million dollars. And, and question, the, uh -huh. the quality of the product with 250 mm -hmm. versus 10, is there a huge disparity in the quality or? Yeah, are you just I mean, paying for expensive U.S. labor on a relative basis? Uh, I, there's definitely a big discrepancy there. And I think part of the reason is um, I think a lot of times when you go, you know, it's that whole like the, what is it, the three C's, the, um, I think is what it's referred to. And I can't remember what, it's like calendar cost. And I think they, they use quality for the third C, which is not really a Q, but whatever. <laughs> um, you know, so, so the time it's going to take, how much is it going to cost and how good is it going to be? You can't have all three, right? You can't have something that's mm -hmm. cheap, super high quality and, and done super fast. And so you kind of have to pick one or two of those and optimize based on that. So mm -hmm. um, I think when you when you talk about really low cost, you're talking about really long development time. Even if they promise and get something done fairly quick, 
probably not going to be the product you originally envisioned. Going to be a lot of bug fixes and changes. You're going to find a lot of issues. Mm -hmm. So we see that a lot with people who try to go cheap. If you go on the high end side, spend a ton of money, you probably get a pretty good product out of that. But you're spending a heck of a lot of money on that. Mm -hmm. You know, what we do is what we call a hybrid approach, where we use, uh, you know, a variety of different resources and also our process planning things out quite a bit ahead of time, so that as we're building a product. We get to the implementation stage. We don't have to pay, you know, exorbitant. Like, what's the average salary for a U.S.-based software developer? Hmm. Probably it's easily over a hundred thousand dollars a year, um, and then benefits on top of that, everything else. I mean, it gets pretty expensive. And so, you know, we're able to to cut some of those costs, but not sacrifice quality. Um, I think we hit a good sweet spot in the middle in terms of what we normally charge for uh, these types of of products. And again, it depends on the app. I mean, if it's a very simple app, you know, it can be, you know, $20,000 is $15,000. You know, it's not uncommon. If it's a fairly complex app, it can be a lot more. But the idea behind the prototype is if you can build something that's not a fully functional app, but at least mm -hmm. paints the picture of how the app's supposed to work. So you can start to get feedback from your investors or from your customers, from your users, mm -hmm. then you can do that for like an order of magnitude less. So let's say you're going to go spend $75,000 building an app. Um, you might be able to build a proto prototype for like $7,500. Mm. And so you're spending, you know, 10% of that to get this out the door that you can get in front of people and get their feedback. And most of the time, the money that you put towards that prototype is something that you'll re you're doing things you would have done anyways when you build the app, right? Because when you think about building a prototype, you're still building, you know, think about an app, you're going to still build the home screen. You're still going to have like the look and feel. You're going to have it, you know, it's going to be skinned with the right colors and graphics and logos and, and everything else, the interface is going to look similar to what the final app is going to look like, right? So mm -hmm. that is stuff you would have spent money on anyways, building out the final app, but you're able to do it for an order of magnitude less. And then if you get negative feedback, let's say no one likes your product idea and you just say, oh yeah, this is going to bomb. Like it's obvious that no one thinks this is a good idea. Mm -hmm. We're only out $7,500 in the 75,000. Or if you get feedback and everyone loves it and they're like, this is great. You need to go build this. Well, you most of that money you spend on the prototype, you can put into the final app. So if it's going to cost you $75,000, you know, you get like $7,500 discount because you've already done that amount of work that you would have done anyways, building out the app. Or if they give you feedback that causes you to pivot and start thinking, well, maybe we need to focus on solving this problem instead of the problem we originally thought we were trying to solve. Well, you can make that pivot now when you're only $7,500 in instead of when mm -hmm. you're $75,000 in. You know, I'm just using those as rough numbers for like costs. I'm not saying that that's kind of the expectation you should have with building a prototype or, or building an app as far as cost, but the concept is there mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. as far as, you know, a good way to mitigate risk. It's what, well, it's kind of like options trading. You think about like the stock market, mm. you, go, you can either buy a security or you can buy an option option to buy. security, mm. right? It's mm. kind of the same concept with, with mm. building an app. It's like an option to build an app. You're buying, you're hedging your bets by building something that, lets you get that customer feedback as soon as possible. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Powerful, powerful. And um, so once they build that prototype, the idea is then start to engage potential customers to test it and to see whether it delivers a value that it's supposed to, I presume? Yes, exactly. So whether you're, you know, different use cases here, but let's say that you're building an app that you want to get investors involved in, and you know that this app, you priced it around, and you know it's going to cost you $100,000, and you know you don't want to bankroll that yourself. You want to get people bought in. It's a great way to have something. You know, normally what people would do is I'll well, put together some slides of maybe you know a PowerPoint or something. Maybe have some drawings and you know showcase 
what I'm thinking of that way and try to get people to buy in, but they still not, they're not completely, they're not actually touching something where they can physically like click on things and see how the app works. Like when you build a prototype, you can literally build a prototype. If it's a mobile app, you can build something that functions just like a mobile app. It doesn't have all the functionality there because mm-hmm. you haven't built out the whole app, but at least it's enough there that they can interact with. So mm-hmm. for investors that works well, um, as well as, like I said, for customers, like say, if you, if you thought you, if you were in real estate, use that example again, you thought you had a good idea for an app that could help real estate agents. Well, you go build a prototype, you go find 10 real estate agent buddies, let them download the app, play with it. Again, it's just a prototype. It doesn't have all the functionality there, but at least they can kind of see how it's going to work and get their feedback. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's really the, the use case, I think, for, for how these uh, prototypes can, can help you. Amazing, amazing. And so if anyone wants to learn more about you, Dustin, um, and your work, how best can they get hold of you? Uh, just go to our website, caffeineinteractive.com. Uh, my email address is dustin at caffeineinteractive.com. So anyone's welcome to reach out to me directly there or go to our website and hit our contact form. And I usually, you know, we're a small company, so I see most of the correspondence that comes in uh, through those forms. So you can always reach me that way. Awesome, awesome. Thank you so much. It's been really cool having you on. Yeah, thank you, Nika. It's been a lot of fun for me as well. The piece on experimentation and pivoting is a piece that's my biggest takeaways. And I think um, it, it is difficult as an entrepreneur to maintain that rigor and being data driven, but it's so important because otherwise you can overinvest time, energy, resources into things that are not working, whether it's the product market fit isn't quite right, the business model is not quite right, the you know internal management of um, personnel is not quite right. It's really important to hold things lightly, not take things, not be so highly strung about the status quo, and just have an experiment, an experimental attitude towards it all. And it reminds me of um, a podcast episode I listened to a while back between Jay Shetty and Matthew McConaughey. And they were talking about purpose and difficult situations and having purposeful pivots. And when I heard that, I really it really resonated with me because the connotation of a purposeful pivot for me the emotion it evokes is one of iteration, improvement, um, is one of positivity as opposed to um, it doesn't connote some sense of failure, um, you know, and it's, it's really freeing. And I love that, that term, purposeful pivot. So when something's not working, how can you pivot in a very purposeful way? And Matthew was talking about how when faced with difficult situations or conflicts, and this is not necessarily even just with respect to businesses, we have three choices. And I I think firstly, knowing that we have choice is so freeing and relieves one of so much stress because you can be in that situation where, you know, money's not coming into the, the bank with the business and it's not working and it's not working and you just feel like a failure rather than an agent of change, someone that has choice. And you're faced with three choices. You can persist, you can pivot, or you can concede. And when I heard that, I was like, it's very simple, right? And it's, 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 it's like, duh. But there's something so freeing of, about knowing that. I, I found it so liberating. 
And Matthew shares tips on how to identify when do you need to pivot, when do you need to persist, or when do you just need to be like, you know what, this isn't working, I'm walking away. And he recommends writing things down. So writing down, be having that observer's eye, what's working, what's not working, what are you seeing? And I would recommend also with this, if this is a business challenge, to write down not only the emotions and the qualitative but also write down the quantitative so all the observable measurable data that's at your disposal track it and look at the trends what's been changing secondly if you can't tell from writing things down and analyzing the data whether you should pivot persist or concede Matthew says, sleep on it. Very simple, right? We all need sleep. <laughs> For me, I, I make the best decisions after I've had a good night of sleep and I wake up in the morning, I have full clarity as to what to do. If you wake up and you, you're, you have a very strength, strong sense of direction, perfect. You know, um, if you feel still restless and anxious about which way to go, give it more time. Give it perhaps another 90 days. I love 90 days. Um, I tend to test things out in 90-day intervals. So I will say for Q1, I'm testing out my hypothesis that ABCD is this. And I give it 90 days. And if it doesn't work, then that project failed and we move on to the next project, right? So you give it another 90 days and then track the data. See where you're at. And let the data tell you whether to pivot, to persist, or to concede. So I really enjoyed that conversation. Hope you found um, something useful in that. I was really blessed by it. Um, and if this was helpful, please share this with someone that you know that this would be a blessing for. Um, and leave a review on Spotify, on Apple, iTunes, or on Google Play. It helps to boost the visibility of the podcast so that it, we can reach even more listeners that will be blessed by the great content. Thank you so, so much for tuning in. Take good care and God bless you.